Good morning, and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. During this Advent season, we're preaching through a series where each week we examine one of the candles of Advent, and today we're on week two, the candle of peace. I don't know about you, but this past year and a half has seemed filled with more conflict and anxiety than ever before on so many levels. Peace is a relevant topic, and we're going to examine it now by stepping through a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah is one of those Old Testament books that gets dusted off every Christmas, and rightly so, because after Psalms, it has the most predictions of the Messiah of any book in the Bible. It is Isaiah who calls Jesus in chapter 9 the Prince of Peace, and here in chapter 11, he flushes out what that means. So let's examine three things. First, the source of peace. How do we get it? Secondly, the vision for peace. What does it look like? And lastly, the way to peace. Practical points for how to live it out. First, the source of peace. Let's read the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Interesting fact, the word for gospel was probably invented by Isaiah. The Greek version of the word, euangelion, literally means good news. Tim Keller once said, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Advice is counsel about what you might want to do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something has already happened. And advice is something you can take or not, depending on whether it serves your needs or meets your agenda. News is something you have to respond to. In Luke 2.10, when the angel appears to the shepherds at night and says, I bring you glad tidings, the word there is euangelizo, good news. They don't say, here's some great advice about how to get peace. They say, I bring you good news. Peace is here. In verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. The Christmas story tells us that biblical peace is not advice, it's an announcement. It's primarily not something we strive for, but something we receive and respond to. Our culture thinks of peace as a state of turmoil-free tranquility, and we get all kinds of advice about how to get there, whether it's emptying our mind of stressful thoughts or changing our circumstances, and not that any of that is bad, but the Bible says that the real reason we don't have peace goes a lot deeper than that. When Isaiah describes Jesus as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9-6, the word he uses there is Shalom, Prince of Shalom. Shalom means something that is whole and complete, like a stone wall with no gaps, something complex with lots of pieces, but in a state of perfect wholeness. The reason we don't have peace is because our lives have been cracked apart by sin. It's our selfishness, our greed, our pride that leads to conflict without and anxiety within and that separates us from God, our creator. And this is not something we can fix on our own. 
That's why Isaiah begins chapter 11 here with stumps. He's been describing a forest that's getting chopped down. At the end of chapter 10, he says, The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. At this point in history, the Israelites had forgotten God and become complacent, and now they were being threatened by the Assyrians. They want to know, should we give in to the Assyrians? And Isaiah is saying, your problem is not that you need more advice about whether to trust yourselves or the Assyrians. Your problem is that you're not trusting God to deliver you. Your own pride and strength will ultimately get you nowhere. You may look like a mighty forest, but when crisis and judgment comes, you'll become a field of stumps. What's the solution? Does Isaiah say, don't worry, some of the trees won't be cut down, or here's some fertilizer to help you grow back? No, he says, an intervention will come. Something new will happen. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot. We read that this shoot will be fully human, descended from the line of Jesse. But this person will also have the full spirit of God. Isaiah lists not seven separate spirits, but the sevenfold nature of the one spirit of God. In Luke 4.18, Jesus begins his public ministry with this announcement from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's saying, I'm the one foretold by Isaiah. And if you notice, Isaiah calls Jesus both the shoot of Jesse in verse 1 and the root of Jesse in verse 10. He is both the descendant and the source, both the pre-existent and the incarnated God. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that's why he can solve the problem of peace. By dying for our sins in our place, Jesus restores to wholeness, to shalom, the broken relationship between us and our Creator God. The source of peace is not a feeling or a bit of advice or a set of circumstances. The source of peace is a person. Ephesians 2 says of Jesus, He Himself is our peace. He restores to wholeness. What does this wholeness look like? Secondly, let's look at the vision for peace by reading the rest of today's text, verses 3 through 10. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What we see first here in verses 3 through 5 is a picture of a peaceful social order. The word judge in verse 4 is not to condemn, but literally to make things just for the poor. 
Jesus will put things right for those without power. Verse 5 means that righteousness and faithfulness are so close to Jesus that they are like belts at his waist and loins. At this point, we're thinking, wow, this will be an enlightened civil servant. But then in verse 6, everything kind of explodes. This king will not just come make this world a little better. He will completely recreate it. We get this vision of a peaceful, natural order unlike anything we could imagine. Woody Allen once gave his interpretation of this vision. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, but the lamb won't get much sleep. What we see here are some of the most vicious predators of Palestine. The wolf, leopard, lion, bear, dwelling in harmony with their prey, with prey so defenseless that they are babies. The lamb, young goat, calf, young child. Security and safety are absolute, even for the most vulnerable in society. This is almost like a reversal of the fall where the enmity between man and serpent we saw from Genesis 3.15 is gone. What's going on here? Isaiah gives us a clue later in chapter 65, where we read almost the same words, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. But there, these words are the climax of a paragraph that begins in chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And if we jump ahead to Revelation chapter 21, we read there, Behold, I am making all things new. We read about a world that is whole, where heavens and earth come together and are remade, where God's glory rests and the nations will come, just like at the end of Isaiah 11.10. See, the vision that Isaiah gives us here of Shalom is not just some fairy tale. It's a picture of the complete restoration that God will bring one day for the entire created order, heavens and earth, together. There's this kind of fallacy in popular Christian culture that says believing in Jesus is just a ticket to get into heaven. And our idea of heaven is some kind of disembodied state we evaporate to after we die. But the Bible never speaks of heaven as a destination. Heaven is not the point of salvation. The point of salvation is not the death of the body and the escape of the soul. The point of salvation is being raised to bodily life in God's new heaven and new earth, which will happen one day when Jesus returns. N.T. Wright puts it this way, God's plan for the whole creation is not to throw it away and snatch us off to a disembodied heaven. Rather, God's plan is to bring heaven and earth rushing together into a glorious new creation, full of justice and equity and faithfulness and truth, so that the poor will rejoice and the meek will be glad, and there will be a cosmic sigh of relief and celebration, because creation knows in its bones that it's made to be flooded with God. God's restorative justice, and one day it will come true. And the point of the Christian gospel is that this has already happened in Jesus. That's the news of Christmas. That's what the angels are announcing. 
This changes our present. It means that everything we do now has potential eternal meaning because we're not just making things more bearable until we escape Earth, but we're building towards what will be the recreated Earth one day. We're living out the breaking through of that future vision into the present world through every restorative act and every expression of hope. We do this when we provide medical care that restores physical health, when we change a dirty diaper or vacuum the floor to restore cleanliness, when we meet someone else's need for security or belonging, when we paint or sew or build something beautiful. All of that can be an act of peace. And if you look at Jesus' life, he wasn't just standing around handing out tickets to some future event. He was healing and cleaning and providing and creating, always living out in the present the promises of the future. His whole life was making peace, and as his followers, we are called to do the same. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. To follow Jesus is to be a peacemaker because that's who he was. That's who he is. That's what it means to be close to him like a daughter or a son. That's how the world knows we are like him. Now, lastly, how do we do this? What does our text today tell us about how we might live as peacemakers? Let's look briefly at three things. First, peacemakers begin with humility. Recently, in preparation for watching Shang-Chi in The Legend of the Ten Rings, I watched through the Marvel movies, or I should say I attempted to watch through them. Have you seen how many there are? <laughs> but there's the scene from the beginning of Iron Man 2 where you see Iron Man flying through the night sky, then he suddenly descends through the ceiling of a huge auditorium and lands right in the middle of the stage. Fireworks go off, rock music is blaring, dancers and a huge screen are behind him, and he rises, lifting his arms. Robots unfold from the floor to disassemble his suit to reveal Tony Stark. That's how God would come, right? He'd jet down in a shiny suit and step out to a room full of cheering fans. But that's not how it went. God came in the form of a baby. Has that ever struck you as exceedingly strange? I remember the milestones we'd celebrate when we had babies. Oh, look, they can turn from their fronts to their backs. They can swallow mushy food instead of pushing it out with your tongues. A far cry from Tony Stark on the stage. But this is Isaiah's first point here, that the God of the universe will come like a shoot a fragile thing, so humble as to be almost unremarkable. In fact, Jesus didn't even arrive as a baby to a privileged family in a cradle that came from their baby registry. When Mary and Joseph went to offer a sacrifice in the temple in Luke 2.24, they gave two doves, which meant they were too poor to afford the usual sacrifice of a lamb. And Jesus arrived in an unsanitary food trough out in the cold and dark amid the stinky smells of animals. He arrived in loneliness. And I think that's a cue for us. Peacemaking begins with humility. 
Peacemakers are people who, because they have peace with God, do not view themselves and their rights and privileges so highly. Peacemakers do not always look at everything in terms of the effect that it has upon them. They speak less and listen more. They have learned how to admit their flaws, how to surrender their pride, how to love without the need to control. What does this look like for you? Maybe it means you're willing to give up having the last word in an argument. Maybe it means you're willing to set aside your right to an offense. Maybe it means you're willing to receive feedback with more of an open mind. Maybe it means you leave the room when you're getting angry so you can calm down and listen better. What does it mean for you to enter conflict with greater humility? Secondly, peacemakers actively bring restoration. Being a peacemaker is not the same thing as being a peacekeeper. It's a lot more than just avoiding conflict, being easygoing, or maintaining the status quo. Because as we've seen, biblical peace is about a lot more than just feelings of tranquility. Its goal is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of shalom. It's about restoring the broken cracks in our society and relationships. It's about living out everything we see here in Isaiah, judging rightly instead of by appearances, acting on behalf of those without power, living out righteousness and faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but none of that sounds like simply being an affable, appeasing person. All of that requires initiative. It requires the willingness to be uncomfortable, sometimes even to go through conflict, suffering, or sacrifice. Maybe this means learning about an uncomfortable piece of history. Maybe it means investing in counseling for your marriage. Maybe it means actively reaching out in an estranged relationship. Maybe it means bearing with the tantrums of your children without responding in kind. Maybe it means finding a way for your family or community group to address the needs of others together. We follow a God who was willing to endure suffering and death to bring peace. Following him means being an active peacemaker wherever we are. Lastly, peacemakers fix their minds on God. At the end of our passage, Isaiah actually tells us how to achieve this picture of shalom he's been describing. He says in verse 9, All this stuff is going to happen for because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We've been talking about external and relational peace, but I know for me the struggle for peace is often an internal battle with anxiety. And you know, there's a lot we could say about anxiety, and the Bible has a lot to say about anxiety, but I just want to leave you with this one thought. How well do you know God? How much do you think about Him, study Him, admire Him, enjoy Him? We don't get rid of our anxiety by trying to control the things we're anxious about or trying to empty our mind of worries, but by filling ourselves instead with the knowledge of God. That's the word Isaiah uses, filling, full, as full as the waters that cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Deeply, vastly, inseparably. Do you know God like that? Later on in chapter 26, verse 3, Isaiah writes, You keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The phrase there for perfect peace in the Hebrew is simply shalom, shalom, repeated for emphasis. You keep him in shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Are you someone who is marked by peace? Do you enter conflict with humility? Do you actively seek to make peace, even if it means going through something difficult? Do you fix your mind on God? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher who lived back in the mid-1900s, and he wrote this. What is the meaning of the Advent? Why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Because God, though he is holy and just and righteous and absolute in all his qualities, is a God of peace. That is why he sent his son. As we think on the Advent candle of peace today, may we keep this in mind. God did not stand on his dignity. He humbled himself. He sent his son all to make peace. That's what Christmas is about. That's the good news, and that's why peacemakers are called children of God. May we be people who are marked by peace and working for peace in the world. Amen.